Good morning and greetings as well in Jesus' name to each of you this morning. It's a blessing to be able together to look into God's Word again. Brother Jesse spoke about the need for us to know God's Word. And that's something that the older I get, the more it's impressed upon me the importance of knowing God's Word and allowing Him to speak to me through it. This morning, I'd like to continue our study that I started a number of weeks ago from 1 Peter. Several weeks ago, we looked at the introduction to the book, verses 1 and 2. Today, I'd like to move on, beginning with verse 3. I'll go ahead and read 1 Peter 3 through 9 at this time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Stop there at this point. I would have liked to have went a little further this morning, but uh, sake of time when you're studying, Janet's asked me before if I'm done studying and I always say, I'm not sure if you ever get done. So uh, we're gonna stop with verse nine for this morning. But Peter begins here, as I said before, the first two verses are an introduction to, to this book, to this letter that he was writing. But Peter then here starts getting into the meat of the message that he had for the people. And he begins with praise for God the Father. He says, blessed be, or praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that he's laying a groundwork here for the message that he was sharing. He wanted the focus to be on God the Father as the source of the blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. And notice that God the Father and God the Son. And I think I pointed out uh, the other week in verse 2, he mentions the entire Godhead, God the Father the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. So I believe that Peter was trying to impress upon people the, the unity of the Godhead and the importance of the work of each part of the Godhead. And we see here that it's because of God's abundant mercy that we have experienced the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I see that as a challenge to us that we need to recognize that everything we have, everything that we've received from God is not something that you or I have earned. 
but it is because of God's mercy. Never lose sight of that in your life, that God's mercy is the only reason that you or I have received anything good from God. I don't think that we understand that well enough. And I don't think that we understand it well until we see ourselves for who we really are without God. Till we see ourselves as lost sinners, helpless to save ourselves, powerless on our own to overcome the onslaughts of Satan and the temptations and the attacks of those who would drag us down. We need to see ourselves as lost and deserving God's judgment before we can fully understand and appreciate the mercy of our loving Heavenly Father. Romans 3.23, a very familiar passage, tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of that, we all deserve his judgment and we deserve separation from him. But instead, as Peter is saying here, God has extended his mercy to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God's mercy was so great that he gave his greatest possession so that you and I could be right with him. And it says here that in his mercy he has begotten us again, is the King James rendering. I want to think about that a little bit. To beget is to bring forth. It's a term used especially in scripture of of a child being born to someone. You you read the genealogies, you know, and -and so-and-so beget so-and-so. So Peter says that God has begotten us again. And I believe that this is talking about the new birth. God has born us again in a spiritual sense. Not physical, but spiritual. The natural birth brings us into a life of sin. We all inherit the sin nature. We all inherit the desire to do things our own way. But through the new birth, through being begotten again by God through Jesus Christ, we experience a spiritual birth into a life of holiness, a life of separation from the sin and pleasures and ways of this world. So instead of giving us what we deserved, God in his mercy has given us new life, spiritual life in place of a life condemned to sin and judgment. He's given us a way to be right with him, a way to, to, a route to fellowship with him instead of separation and a route to be with him for all eternity. We also see here that we are begotten 
what we are begotten into. We are begotten into a lively hope. That term lively used by the King James, I looked in about half a dozen other translations and almost every other translation translates that as living. So when you read that lively hope, don't think about lively as in somebody that's jumping around, but lively as in it has life. And I found just a, maybe somewhat of a side note, I found very interesting a comment that Adam Clark made on this verse. Peter was speaking about this living hope that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And Peter and the other disciples had experienced a strong hope in Jesus Christ. They believed that he was the Messiah sent from God who was going to save the children of Israel from the oppression that they were under. And the day came when their hope died. Jesus was sentenced to death, and he was crucified, and his body was laid in the tomb. And we see a picture of the disciples broken. Their hope had been shattered. But then three days later, they experienced a lively hope a living hope when they saw the resurrected Lord and, the, and it dawned on them what had happened and that this was really true their hope then again became alive and in a new sense so I thought it was an interesting illustration of of a living hope we look to Christ and believe in his resurrection from the dead. His work on the cross for us, and it gives us a living hope. We have hope in Christ because he lives, and because Christ lives, so can we, spiritually. Before the disciples' hope was based on earthly things, earthly hopes, but after the resurrection it was based on the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the challenge for us is that a hope that is based on anything other than redemption through Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of Christ and his resurrection, is not a living hope. It's a dead hope. So where is our hope? Is our hope centered on the, the sacrificial work and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? That is what gives us a living hope. Also, I was impressed in these verses that you may have wondered before. I know I have pondered this question. Why was the resurrection so important. We talk about the sacrifice, the sacrifice that Christ made, the, the, the suffering he went through for us, the blood he shed, his death. But why was the resurrection so important? And I believe that here Peter is touching on that importance of the resurrection. 
Because that resurrection is a physical demonstration of what God wants to do for each one of us. Jesus Christ died a physical death. There was no doubt that he was dead when he was laid in that tomb. But three days later, to those he appeared to, there was no doubt that he was alive. It was somewhat of a different sense of being alive because he could come and go through closed doors and suddenly appear. But there was no doubt that he was alive. And I believe that it's a demonst- God was using that as a demonstration of what he wants to do for each one of us in a spiritual sense. He wants to transform us from those who are spiritually dead in sin and who are separated from him, separated from a holy God because of the sin that we have inherited from our father Adam and what we have all committed. And raise us to life spiritually. to experience true life, to experience reconciliation to a holy God. The new birth is transformative. A true conversion experience is going to show change. It's going to bring about drastic change in the life of the person who accepts Christ. Unfortunately, we probably all have seen instances where someone makes a profession of Christ. And then people say, you know, I just don't really see change in their life. That's troubling because that is not the demonstration of of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that the experience of the new, new birth in a spiritual sense, is as transformative as Christ's physical resurrection was. It brings about a drastic change. Also, I wanted to talk just a little bit about hope. It mentions a lively hope. I've struggled with that term hope before. And I've concluded that I, at least, maybe the rest of you, but I, I know, have used it in an improper sense most of my life. We've used it uh, with an incorrect definition. I looked up the Greek word that is translated here, hope. And it has the meaning of expectation or confidence. So I thought, well, that's interesting. It's speaking about something that we don't uh, think maybe it'll possibly happen sometime, but something we are confident in. So I thought, I wonder what the dictionary says about hope. Because so often we use hope in the terms of, I hope it will rain today. It's something we want, but we don't necessarily expect that it's going to happen. And so I looked it up in uh, my Merriam-Webster dictionary, 
And it said this, number one, to desire with expectation of obtainment. So it's a desire, but along with the desire, you have an expectation that you will obtain what you're hoping for. And number two, to expect with confidence. So hope that he's speaking of here is not something that we just wish would happen. But it's something that we hold to in expect, expectation of fulfillment. And we can do that because we're looking to God to fulfill that hope. If we're hoping for earthly and material things, that hope may have a level of uncertainty. But brothers and sisters, when our hope is in the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can hope with expectation and confidence of the fulfillment of that hope. And I believe that that's the, the idea of this lively hope that he speaks about there in verse 3. That we have a hope in Christ that we can hold to with firm expectation. We don't know how all of life is going to play out, but we know that God will be true to what he has promised. <clears throat> Moving on to verse 4, we see here what God has begotten us to, or born us again to. He says we are begotten to an inheritance, incorruptible. So when we're born again, we're brought into God's family. We become his children. Romans 8, 17a says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And I didn't look it up, but somewhere it, it, uh, there's a verse, I think maybe it's in Hebrews, that it says that Christ has called us his brethren. So as we are born again. We are born into a hope of an inheritance. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly. Earthly inheritances, as we typically think of them, are made of things that are corruptible. Things that, as it says in Matthew 6, 19, that moth and rust will corrupt and destroy, and thieves will break in and steal. But this is speaking about an inheritance that is incorruptible. It will never be touched by corruption, by theft. If it was an earthly inheritance, it would be in danger of those things. But it says that here that it's reserved in heaven, a place that has never faced or experienced corruption or decay. Again, it's speaking about that confidence, that confident hope that we have, that what God has prepared for us is secure. It's reserved for each one who has surrendered themselves to the Lordship of Christ. In verse 5, he switches from speaking about 
this lively hope and inheritance to speaking about us. To those who are saved, who are the heirs. It says that we are kept by the power of God. Think about this. He says that our inheritance is reserved for us. And he says that we are kept by the power of God. And the idea I see here is that God has wonderful things in store for the believer. And we can have a confidence that he is keeping that inheritance incorruptible for us. And he is also keeping us. It's his plan and his desire to bring us together with him to reveal to us the inheritance that he has prepared. He keeps us by his power. But it's not just that we surrender to God and then he does all the work of keeping us. But it says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So we have a part to play. We have a part to play through faith. To remain under that protective, keeping power of God. We don't come to Christ and then just sit back and let him do all the work, so to speak. But we exercise and live by faith to remain in him. We live in a corrupt society. And if we don't daily exercise our faith in him, we're in danger of being corrupted and drawn away. But the power is there. If we exercise faith, God is faithful to keep us to the end. We also see here in verse 5 that we are kept for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're saved the moment that we surrender our heart to Christ. But the consummation of our salvation is truly at the end of the age when God restores all things to himself. Our salvation is a present reality. We can live and we can be saved today. We can live in salvation today. But the day is coming when our salvation will be finalized. When Satan will be bound and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So our salvation is a present reality, but it's also a future hope. And remember again that hope is not wishing for something, but it's an expectation. As a future hope, we look forward to being translated from this temporal world into the eternal, into a world 
a setting where we're constantly influenced by, by sinful things. Things that try to draw us away from a focus completely on God and, and his son to a world where all of that is gone. A world of holiness. And also being translated into the presence of the Lord himself. In verse 6, he says, we greatly rejoice in this salvation. We rejoice both in the present and the future aspects. But in the meantime, he says, we may be faced, and the people he was writing to were faced with manifold or many temptations. And that, that word temptation isn't the, the temptation that we, we use of a temptation to sin, but a trial, something that tests us. to the believers that Peter was writing to here in the very early church. He was referring most likely to actual physical persecution and opposition that they were facing. They lived in an environment that was very hostile. They lived in an environment where standing firm, where, where being faithful could mean physical death. but I believe that it applies to us as well because we all face testing of our faith. And he expounds in verse 7 on the purpose of that testing. The purpose of that testing of our faith is not to break it, but it's to strengthen it and to purify it. He refers to gold being tried in the fire. And you know gold and other metals are heated to a liquid state. And when you take a, a metal like that and heat it to a liquid state, the impurities separate out because you have different molecular weights of these different elements. And it's heated and the impurities drawn off. And in the same way, as we face the heat of trials or the heat of persecution, wherever we may, if we may ever find ourselves in that, the purpose of that is to purify our Christian character, to draw us to be more Christ-like. Have you ever considered why? Trials and testing have a way of, of doing that. Pondered that a little as I was studying. Trials and testing, I believe, have a very effective way of helping us to get rid of self. Think about these believers that Peter was writing to who were actually facing persecution and possible death. In that, in that situation, nobody is a halfway Christian. And so as, as we face these difficult things in life, 
It causes us to separate out what is really important in life, what is really important in my walk with the Lord versus the things of this life that are not important or that may be dragging me down. As I read this verse and studied it, I had to think about Job and his response to the extreme testing that he went through. He said in Job 23.10, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job faced extreme testing, yet he was determined that he was going to come forth as the gold. He was going to allow the testing to get rid of the dross in his life and to hang on to the good. And he came through that trial with his faith in God intact. And I ask, how do you look at trials and testing? I know for myself, I don't enjoy hard things. I don't look for or look forward to things that are difficult. But as I look back on my short life, some of the hardest things that I have struggled with have been the things that have molded me the most and drawn me closer to God and further from the world. And I want to challenge us to be like Job as we face these trials and testings of various kinds, to have an attitude of persevering, perseverance and looking to God so that we can be strengthened so we can build up, be built up, so that we can come forth as gold, so we can get rid of the dross and the things that drag us down, the things that pollute a holy life. Also in verse 7, we see the phrase, being much more precious than gold that perisheth. And I believe that hit, that, that phrase is referring to the value not of the testing, but the value of our faith. Things of this world are temporal. They have their place. But faith is eternal in that faith is the one thing that we need to make it to heaven. We have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to surrender. That faith is what carries us through. That faith, he's saying, is more precious than gold. That's why the testing and the purifying of our faith is of so much value and why we should not necessarily look for it, but we should welcome the opportunity when we face hard things to let it refine us and make us more like the person God would have us to be. We tend to focus often, I believe, on what our faith does for us as well. But we also see here that the purpose of our faith, he says in the end of verse 7, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that our faith isn't so much about us but it's about bringing honor and glory to our Heavenly Father. 
We need to remember that the Christian life is not about me. Rather, it's the opposite of that. It's about me dying so that Christ can live in me and I can exemplify what God would have for his people. For his honor and glory, not for mine. Thinking about all this and, and the purifying effects of, of trials and, and building up our faith and bringing glory and honor to God, why does the church historically grow by leaps, leaps and bounds during times of persecution? And I think we all know it's because of the refining effect of trials, of hard things that help us to get rid of self, that help us to focus on what is truly important, our faith of much more value than gold. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to have persecution to experience that purifying and that growing in our faith. Let's take it upon ourselves to pursue that in the environment we find ourselves in, not wait for the Lord to bring hard things in our life to correct us. Then verse 8, he says that they had not seen the Lord, yet in faith they had believed on him and loved him. Again, very interesting that Peter, who was close to Jesus, who knew the Lord intimately and on a personal level in life, was the one saying this. They didn't know the Lord. I mean, they had never met the Lord physically, but yet through the eye of faith, they saw the Lord and they loved him and served him. And they were filled with joy in spite of these trials that they faced because they knew their faith was so strong, they knew who they believed in. And they were, as verse 9 says, receiving the end of their faith, or the result of their faith, the salvation of their souls. They were receiving the present day blessing of surrender to the Lord with an expectation of that future hope. They were filled with joy because they saw the end result. They were filled with joy in spite of the realization that tomorrow I may be the one who is martyred for my Lord. Can you imagine facing that, not knowing when you walked out these doors if you would be alive next Sunday? They faced that with joy because of the faith and hope that they had. Their focus wasn't on themselves. Their focus wasn't on their trials, but their focus was on their Lord and what he had done for them and what he had in store for them, even if this life ended tomorrow. They had a faith that they would receive that incorruptible inheritance. So this morning in closing, my prayer for each one of us is that we would have and would embrace that living hope, that hope in, a, in our current salvation from sins, and that we would be looking with an eager expectation 
to that eventual culmination of our salvation in the presence of the Lord. And that we would embrace the difficult things of life that God brings into our experience as things that he is using to draw off the dross, the things that would pollute, the things that would draw us away from a single-hearted focus on him. Those trials are not stumbling blocks, but they're things that God is using to build us up and to refine our faith and to make us look forwards with joy and eager anticipation to what he has prepared for each one of us who have surrendered our hearts to him. May God bless you and we have a song.